Welcome to Bone to Pick, the official podcast of Hip Bone Music and Michael Davis. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hipbonemusic or find us on Twitter at hipbonemusic. Bone to Pick features interviews with legends of the musical field conducted by the hip bone himself, Mr. Michael Davis. Hi everybody, I'm Michael Davis. Welcome to Bone to Pick. I am totally stoked today to have the opportunity to sit down with our Artist of the Month for December, one of the most brilliant trumpet players uh, anywhere in the world today, the great Chris Gecker. Uh, Chris is originally from the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, he is a graduate of the Eastman School of Music and received the coveted Performer Certificate while at Eastman. Uh, he's been a member of the American Brass Quintet, started in 1981, was with them for 18 years. Also principal trumpet of the Orchestra of St. Luke's, performed extensively with the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra, and uh, he has been described as the most recorded trumpet player in the chamber music medium. Um, he has been guest principal trumpet with the New York Philharmonic and San Francisco Symphony. Uh, he is an esteemed author. He's one of the most sought-after teachers anywhere in the world. He's held the uh, professor of trumpet position at the University of Maryland since 1998. Uh, he's also, and I can attest to this uh, firsthand, he's one of the most versatile trumpet players you're going to find. He's also performed extensively and recorded with Sting, Billy Joel, Peter Gabriel, Wayne Shorter, uh, as well as numerous motion picture soundtracks. He's done virtually everything you could do in the, in the world of trumpet performance. He's been heralded by the New York Times, CD Review, and Gramophone Magazine for his virtuosic trumpet playing. So uh, we are really honored to have him here today. We are coming to you uh, from New Jersey City University. And uh, Chris, thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule. I know you've got a master class in performance this afternoon, so we really appreciate your time. Thank you, Mike. It's great to talk to you, as right. always. Uh, thank you, Chris. Well, let's jump in and talk about your maybe your formative years. Uh, I know you were born in D.C. and grew up in Virginia, but you know certainly associated with the D.C. area. And uh, I was curious, you know, just what kind of led you to the trumpet early on? Well, <clears throat> most public school kids, uh, I'm probably uh, all of us have this in common, fourth grade, they bring all the instruments around. And I picked trumpet. Uh, I had heard it at a few concerts. You grow up in D.C., you end up hearing a lot of military bands. And uh, just uh, it, there was a lot of trumpet on TV. I remember uh, sitting watching TV with my parents, watching the Jackie Gleason show. You'd hear Bobby Hackett. And, <laughs> right, right. and he'd have guests like Dizzy Gillespie. I remember Louis Armstrong once on there. So, and then there was the Herb Alpert years and uh, 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 so on. So I picked the trumpet. Um, I had uh, great band directors, uh, two in Alexandria, Virginia, which is right outside of D.C., Jack Dallinger and Roy Smith, both great trumpet players, so I got to hear that in school. Um, we would go, back in those days, there was no Watergate Hotel. Watergate met a, a, a series of steps by the Potomac River, and the military bands would play on a floating, floating barge, so I grew up uh, doing that. My parents are both European. Uh, my mother was from uh, Dusseldorf, Germany. My father was Russian background, though he grew up in New York City uh, oh, wow. uh, during the Depression. There's a lot of music in the house, and of course there it was like uh, you know Schubert, Schumann. My father was a very fine amateur pianist who you know played beautifully, and uh, <clears throat> and um, so I would hear that in the house. 
once you got outside the door, you're talking about the 60s, uh, it was the time to be in bands. I mean, every kid who played an instrument. And, you know, what we called soul bands back in those days. We played Wilson Pickett, James Brown. I got very used to playing in bands where no one read music, which was great training. You know, mm -hmm. on Saturdays, everyone around a record player, and you just pick out the parts you need to play. And uh, got started hearing uh, other things. I remember when, when Jimi Hendrix, are you experienced? We, you know, we didn't know what to make of this record. We went nuts <laughs> over that. And then the early Chicago Transit Authority were just yeah. listening. And, and uh, so I had that dual sort of Euro inside the house. And, you know, uh, and then started listening to jazz. And uh, I remember my parents were always so supportive. I mean, really. And they didn't really, you know, they, they, they knew I liked jazz. You know, and so they bought a Miles Davis record. I was a sophomore in high school, and they bought Field of Kilimanjaro, which was the last quintet record, you know, Wayne Short, right before In a Silent Way. It's, mm -hmm. And I remember them putting it on, and it was like uh, this kind of wind from another world. I mean, everyone was sort of quiet, and we were all sort of bewildered. Well, I couldn't stop listening to it. And I, I think that once you, for a kid that age, you hear Miles and Wayne Short, and you know, just nothing's ever going to be the same after that. And, so yeah, so I, but it was always that duo thing. You know, my father would take me back in those days. Uh, Ormandy would bring the Philadelphia Orchestra to Constitution Hall, and I was very aware of Gil Johnson, the first trumpet. Mm. Yeah, I, I absolutely raked through the local public library. The, the New York Philharmonic recorded Mahler III with Johnny Ware playing the postman's role. For trumpet players of my generation, you can talk to Vince Penzarella and Vince, Phil Smith and so many people. That, that was sort of this iconic recording. You know, Johnny Ware played so expressively and of course Bernstein you know set this this atmosphere up so that one record seems to be like a kind of a, a, a coming of age experience for all of us and uh, and so that was a big deal and then so uh, I I grew up in high school wanting you know playing or I was playing orchestra and solos and then also playing jazz and rock and in what we nowadays we call a funk band back then mm -hmm. we call soul bands and uh, then when I uh, <clears throat> was looking to go to college, uh, I wanted to go to a college that had both. And it didn't exist too much back then. Right, the, right. The, and there were some big music schools in the country that would expel you if you were heard practicing jazz. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought back then it was Indiana with David Baker and Eastman, which we associate with Chuck Mangione. Uh, he wasn't quite there yet, but he had sort of started that thing. Right. And so I, I went to Indiana and, uh, and I... Had a great time playing for Mr. Davidson and, and Phil Farkas and all you know, and they, but I noticed there that it was separate. Now I couldn't afford to go all the way to Rochester, but just talking to people, there was a lot of Eastmanites in the D.C. area because military bands have always been filled with, <laughs> and uh, I knew that it was mixed, so mm -hmm. I, I I wanted to go to Eastman. Yeah, that's and uh, it was uh, the best possible choice. Uh, you know, I had a kind of a teacher in in high school that when he found out I was listening to Miles Davis almost wouldn't speak to me and, and it, was, it was it was a subversive act in those days to, in a lot of areas so but I you know th that experience at Eastman where you know you would play uh, in an orchestra and brass quintet and then Ray Wright and, and back and then there was a lot of big band gigs to have around Rochester weddings club dates and you'd play late on a Friday night and then Ray Wright would have studio orchestra 9 a.m. on Saturday morning and you couldn't be late and that discipline he taught because he had just come from Radio City Music Hall to Eastman, and it was that sort of ethic of like you show up on time, even if you just got three hours of sleep, and I don't care how you feel, uh, 
you're going to play. And, he, and by the way, he was a great guy. I mean, but, but he taught Absolutely. that yeah. professional ethic, you know. I got a lot of that myself. And, and, and in my day, it was jazz ensemble met at 9 o'clock in the morning yeah, on yeah. Saturday. So it's the exact same well, actually, uh, kind of yeah, actually, that is true. Uh, and, and, and then he started the studio orchestra, which would be, he'd have the jazz ensemble and he had strings. So it was, yeah. It that was, was such was, a great thing that yeah. he started, too. That yeah. was a really cool thing that we, we would go as just as you did yourself. Well, Chris, that's some great stuff. And I think, you know, what's really interesting and in just the way you described your upbringing, you, that really attests to your versatility. I mean, you're musically, you're just very versatile. Um, I think I wanted to talk a little bit more about your experience at Eastman. I know you, uh, it's rare, but uh, a few of the brass players did receive the performance certificate, which is a very coveted, uh, very prestigious award. Um, you were also a member of the faculty quintet, the Eastman Brass Quintet, along with Alan Vizzuti. And I know Alan was a, a fellow student at the same time. Maybe you could talk a little bit about about those years specifically with the, those couple of things. Well, Alan was a couple years ahead of me, and uh, I think I feel the same way now at Maryland or at any school I've been ta I taught at Juilliard for like 12 years, and, and uh, I think that a, 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 the best school atmosphere is that when you have strong teaching, but it, within the studio you have a, sort of a bro big brother, big sister relationship between the older students and the younger ones. It's very, very important to have that dynamic. Just like a sports team, you need sort of leaders on the field. Mm -hmm. And at Eastman, Alan was like that. He was just like so, uh, uh, well, you know, playing-wise, he's just sort of kind of like off the charts, you know. <laughs> but, he, but he was always a very giving, generous person with advice and, and just leading by examples. We, we would do gigs. I remember we toured with The Temptations and, and we'd do other things. And, and we played in the Rochester Philharmonic a lot together. Toward the end, by the time I was a senior, he was too busy. He was in grad school. He was just too busy already playing so many solos, and I was, Rochester Philharmonic had two full-time trumpet players, uh, Dick Jones and Abe Lillard, and they would always hire a third. And I, so I was with the regular there, so playing every, every week with mm. them, basically. And uh, um, so, yeah, Alan, and, and there were others, and Vinnie Martino, who had been at school a little before, but was coming back, you know, back in those days, Eastman Kodak would have an industrial show. Sure, yeah. You know, and, and so Vinnie would come back for that, and he and I would do that gig, and, and we... <laughs> And it just, uh, you know, it was just a great uh, atmosphere for learning. Uh, tough, you know, conductors like Donald Hunsberger, they, you know, I remember when we were all sitting there as freshmen and he gave a speech and he said, uh, uh, the main thing I want you to know is the next four years will be the most protected years of your life. And we're like, <laughs> we're like, like what? But he taught great lessons. I mean, he was a great leader and, uh, and it was sort of tough love, which is what you yeah. need. You know, yeah. It's a tough business. Yeah. But but you need nurturing, so you need the two things side by side. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, let's jump ahead now. Your first, I mean, you were already working as you described in Rochester, but uh, I guess your first, you know, kind of big uh, landing point as a professional was in Kansas City with the Philharmonic. There, what was what was that like in getting that position? Well, I took the job. I took the audition. It was a big one. There were a lot of people there. Uh, Kansas City Philharmonic was a, you know, they had the, most of the summer off, but it was a, a very active orchestra with recordings, uh, Carnegie concerts, and. Uh, it's kind of a funny story. I mean, I just didn't, I just graduated from Eastman. I just <clears throat> wasn't really sure, you know, I, I had an invitation to come back and, and stay in the quintet and rot in the Philharmonic. And I was thinking that I'd probably head back to Rochester after the summer. And uh, so I went out for the audition. And it's kind of a funny story, but I, I grew up in D.C. And back in those days, we just had National Airport, which is right in Alexandria. And mm. I kind of just thought that, that's the way airports were, that when you land at airport, you were in <laughs> So I fly to Kansas City, and I jump in a cab. 30 minutes later, I'm still looking at these fields. You know, we're still... 
And by the time it got to Kansas City, it was all the money I had. And keep in mind, I mean, many people might be watching this. That there was a time when there were no ATMs, no <laughs> cell phones, no answering machines. So I had cash in my pocket and no way to get other cash. <laughs> so I show up there, and uh, we. It's there were sixty or seventy people there. A lot of Chicago, you know, a lot of guys. Uh, going for this job. And Kansas City had a rich tradition. I mean, uh, Dale Clevenger had been first horn there, Phil Farkas before him, Charlie Schluter had been first trumpet. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. Interesting. Oh, yeah. It was in the days when orchestras like Kansas City and New Orleans almost acted sort of like as AAA teams. And, you know, Gitala came to Boston from one of those kind of orchestras. And, uh -huh. you know. So, and it was a good job. I mean, it was a... a anyway, uh, I made, so I, they, they picked, I think, 12 people to play the next day. And... I, I'm in downtown Kansas City. I find basically a, a flop house <laughs> for like two bucks. And I, and I basically slept, you know, it's laid in that cot with all my clothes on, with my trumpets in my arms, you know. <laughs> and the next day, you know, you didn't really have money to eat. I mean, just, I don't mind. It's not, I was young and, you know, you don't care when you're young. So that next day we went from 10 to 6 to 4 to 2. And then at the end of the day, they, they, looked at me and said, we'd like to offer you a job. And, uh, um, and I remember Vince Bellardo was a personal manager, and, and uh, he said, now, do you have any questions? And I said, yeah, can I borrow 20 bucks <laughs> to get I mean, he just cracked up. I, I told him later, you know, I, I would have really, you know, I, I guess I would have had to borrow money even if I'd not won because, and, you know, just on the honor system. And he said, yeah, I would have spotted you, kid. You're okay. You know, but it was an awkward situation. <laughs> well, now we've discovered the keys to orchestral auditioning. In addition to playing great, stay at a flop house the well, night before the finals. Well, you know, I, I, I do tell my students sometimes that there's a window, uh, and for me it was in my early 20s, uh, there's a window when you practice that way, you, you hammer out those extra. I think later on, I mean, I didn't, wasn't taking any after that, but I, I also don't think I could have. I mean, there's a, I, I think a lot of my students would have beat me. There's a way you practice when you're getting excerpts ready, and then there's a way you play when you're actually in the orchestra playing those pieces. Yeah, and a it's a lot point. of difference. Sure. So uh, it's hard if, you've, if you're doing the job. I mean, they, uh, my last teacher, Gerard Schwartz, who I'd like to speak about if, if that subject comes up, because he's yeah, a gigantic yeah. influence, he used to say there's uh, performing, recording, and auditioning. And it's like three different ways of playing. And he says it's rare to find someone who is equally good in both. Mm. You'll, you'll, some, tr some of the best trumpet players I've ever met in my life have never won an audition. I know people who have won several auditions who not, you know, wouldn't be my first choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I, know, I knew people that were uh, deadly in the recording studio but almost had stage fright mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. vice versa. Guys that would you'd play with and terrific and then they would tighten up in a recording studio mm. so you know it's it's a well well said yeah, yeah i never thought of it like that but you're absolutely right there it's kind of those three components yeah. well let's let's jump ahead to new york i mean you're so associated with the incredible amount of work and 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 in preparing for this interview i i knew so much about <laughs> your career and what you've done but looking at your resume it's just uh, beyond impressive but um if you could address um it, you know, there's three things that really jump out. Of course, your time with the American Brass Quintet, very important, and, and one of the great brass quintets anywhere in the world. And then, of course, your time, which was kind of concurrent with uh, being principal trumpet and orchestra St. Luke's. And also, maybe if you could touch on, on the performances you did with the Orpheus as well. Well, I, I uh, Ray Mace called me to audition for the uh, uh, American Brass Quintet in 1981. Um, <clears throat> I had left Kansas City in 79. I'd moved back to D.C., 
I was getting a, uh, doing some graduate work at University of Maryland. They had a faculty brass band I was playing with. And I was also doing a lot of shows. There were in the theaters in town, Warner, uh, Ford's Theater, National Theater. There was this constant, uh, I was just always playing a show or at the Kennedy Center. But when, when the call came from Ray, I was doing the, the Bernstein Mass at the Kennedy Center. Mm. And uh, this is also in the day, again, days before answering machines, you know, Ray had, had talked to someone in Canadian brass who's, you know, they had actually picked somebody, I think from L.A., I'm not quite sure, but Ray, this guy said, you know, there's someone else you might want to just check out if you have the time. And Ray said, yeah, sure. So, and he had to call, and he thought, like, I call my mom, and my mom knew a, a number I might be reached <laughs> at. And this is the way it was in the old days, you know, like the old Chinese, uh, <laughs> right. uh, China song. <laughs> near right, the music right. Union. <laughs> you know, people, uh, but um, uh, anyway, uh, so I, I arranged to go up and, and, and it offered me a job. And, I, and for the first uh, year, I spent most of my time still in DC. I just had too many work to do, but I, I, I went up to New York and would play the, the quintet stuff. They had a recital series at Carnegie Recital Hall and some tours, and, and then Aspen in the summer. And then, uh, but anyway, I, got, I just uh, got asked by St. Luke's, and, and did a, we did a, I did a tour with them with the Vienna Choir Boys, and then they offered me the spot and and Ray and I sort of functioned as co-principals with Orpheus in those days Orpheus did not designate trumpeters as members they do now and my dear friend Carl Albach who played second to me uh, for years in, in St. Luke's uh, does that work with Orpheus now and, and Carl's a great friend and mm -hmm. great great player but um, anyway Ray and I would sort of act as co-principals uh, with Orpheus so uh, Orpheus had had signed a big recording contract with Deutsche Grammophon, I mean, multiple CDs, and, and, and St. Luke's was doing lots of recording as well. It's a very active time. We were doing, so, and, and it was like, if, if they worked together, so if I put the quintet schedule with Orpheus and St. Luke's, it sort of meshed, and it was almost a year, you know, it was almost filled your year, and on top of that, I would do studio work and the occasional bits with the Philharmonic, and uh, I started working you know, fairly frequently with the Chamber Society Lincoln Center, and, and uh, so it, it was great. I mean, it was, uh, you know, New York can be this unbelievable mix of experiences, and, and it's a wonderful place. And I, I always tell my students, and I've told my own kids who are musicians, you know, if you're young and you have enough money to be, you know, not too worried, it's, there's no greater place in the world to be than New York City. I mean, it's just the hang and the, and the you know, just the variety of what's going on. It's just incredible. So many uh, creative people. It's yeah, just great. So yeah. vibrant. And yeah. there, there are creative people everywhere. Every, in Kansas City there were, uh, in D.C. there are, but New York is just a special, special place. Yeah. yeah. You know, you were saying before the interview, and I wanted to touch on it uh, specifically about St. Luke's, that that was kind of the hipster orchestra, and you guys, we I mentioned the the Lyle Mays Street Dreams Project, one of my yeah. favorite CDs, and and that the orchestra, and you were featured prominently on it. But maybe talk a little bit about some of the you mentioned the, some of the cool things you guys did as an orchestra. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it's fine. I, I, I could make some people kind of give me a dirty look for saying this, but St. Luke's was sort of uh, you know had a quasi sort of hippieish kind of vibe about it, and Orpheus was more driven, you know, really intense and fantastic. So. The, and then you had a few people like me that sort of floated between the groups. And uh, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, St. Louis, we did, you know, the, the Nixon in China project with John Adams, which was real groundbreaking those. And we did dance projects with Pina Bausch and Mark Morris. We were really involved at, at the Brooklyn Academy a lot. Then the orchestra got a series at Carnegie and, and became sort of the gun for hire orchestra at Carnegie, backing up all sorts of uh, people that would come through Carnegie. And Orpheus, uh, 
much more of a touring and and uh, you know much more of an identity as as uh, a, a repertory chamber orchestra, and uh, fascinating. I mean, uh, some of the most memorable musical experiences in those two groups, uh, different but both you know unique, and uh, you know doing uh, you know Schoenberg and Stravinsky with. Uh, Orpheus, but then again with St. Luke's, we did eight or nine CDs with Robert Kraft of Stravinsky. So, you know, that was a real um, uh, amazing hmm. time to go through. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, I mentioned in the intro that, you know, you are, if not the most uh, recorded trumpet player, certainly in the, the top several uh, most recorded trumpet players in the chamber music medium, and you've already obviously just touched on a couple. But um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about some of the other projects. I know you. Uh, were involved in an award-winning Brandenburg Concerto recording. Uh, several of those Bach pieces you're known for, you know, uh, your, the B minor mass, Christmas Oratory. I also know the uh, the Copeland's Quiet City you're playing on that has gotten rave reviews from critics. And uh, um, maybe you could, if you would, just, I know there's so many to go through in your, in your career, but if there are some other moments outside of those orchestras that you just talked about that kind of jump out at you. Well, uh, thanks. Yeah, I, I, that, Copeland, that was the first, I had done, I had done, you know, done LPs in the 70s. I did a bunch of uh, brass quintet recordings for Alec Wilder, you know, long before I came to New York. And, uh, um, but the first time I sort of recorded commercially as a soloist was the Copeland Quiet City. We did a whole Copeland record with uh, Dennis Russell Davies and St. Mm -hmm. Luke's uh, music for the theater and music for movies. I, 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 was, I was sitting in a coffee shop with a, a drummer, Franklin Kiermeyer, who's a dear friend of mine. And, Franklin, later, we recorded with Pharaoh Sanders. Franklin's sort of a post-Elvin Jones, but I don't want to uh, label him because Franklin is his own, is his own universe. Uh, <laughs> just look him up online. He, he lives in, in, in Scandinavia now, and, uh, but uh, he's just, uh, he just did a recording with uh, uh, Junie Booth, and, and you know, just an amazing guy. But we're talking about a project, and then we're in a coffee shop, and, and I hear Quiet City on a... On a Speaker, you know, and then we go back to, and then later they announce my name. Is I didn't know the record had been out. Yeah, <laughs> sort of funny, but um, yeah, uh, uh, the uh, I was very, you know, grateful for that. Uh, the chance to do the Brandenburg, I performed the Brandenburg many, many times. I think I stopped counting at around eighty or so, but uh, <laughs> uh, still got to do it this winter, which I'm getting a little long in the tooth for, but <laughs> I got talked into it, but. Uh, uh, and had done it many times overseas. I once did it in Osaka, where the uh, the this was in the late '80s, and the Japanese had this like RoboCam on stage, and while I'm playing it, this like robotic camera is circling me. <laughs> and in fact, Joe Alessi told me once that he was in Japan and saw it on TV once. It's <laughs> kind of like the you know Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible, the 360. Thing. <laughs> I've never that, seen it. I've never. I just heard that, about that's it. That's something that needs to be on YouTube <laughs> yeah. immediately. I don't know. I don't much. I don't know. But uh, yeah, we recorded it up at the uh, American uh, Academy's Letters on 155th, and and uh, I was in D.C. at that time. But they, St. Luke's, asked me to come up and do it, and um, uh, I was very, you know, we did it all under the same mics. Uh, it's all balanced, so to speak, live. Uh, Brandenburg is a piece that it's very tempting to isolate the trumpeter because there's a lot. It's hard to balance in that high register with the flute, the oboe, and the violin. Mm -hmm. And uh, but we all did it, did it all live, and even the piano, the 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 string orchestra is like two on a part, so it's very transparent. But it's it came out of Liz Ostro, a great producer, who used to produce all of New World Records. She was there, and she was sort of my uh, booth buddy for that. And she, you know, 
helped me. Actually, I give her a lot of credit for the mm. success of that recording. But to play with, you know, Steve Taylor and Liz Mann, these, Krista Benya, I mean, these musicians are just amazing, have always been. I, there was another group in New York called the Manhattan Chamber, which was sort of put together for some recordings. I did a lot of things with them. A Havana CD, which with Prayer of St. Gregory and the Concerto for Trumpet and Band and the Aria for Trumpet and Strings. And that, that won a Billboard magazine best recording of the year back in 93 or 94 mm. and um, sold a lot of copies. Uh, you can't really say that expression anymore. <laughs> Records don't really say they get downloaded a lot, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had a lot of likes, I guess yeah, I should yeah. say. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, um, it was great. I, you know, I did. I did get a chance to like record the Stravinsky Octet three times, and and one of them won a Grammy, and and the uh, Listoire a couple times. I don't. I also feel strongly that I just happen to be in the right place at the right time. So I feel very grateful. Oh. You know, good luck is an old teacher who used to tell me this, and this is an old saying. Good luck is when preparation and opportunity intersect, and I happen to be lucky in the fact that, you know, I was in New York in a decade when all this recording activity was going on, and, and so I, I'll never take that for granted. I mean, I've just uh, been given that opportunity. Well, you're a very humble guy, but I think if you're in the right place at the right time for the last 40 years, every day, it's a, a little more than just that, but uh, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great quality that uh, makes you, uh, you know, part of the success that you've had, I think, too. Um, Maybe we could shift gears now a little bit, Chris, and talk about uh, orchestral playing. Um, in addition to your time in Kansas City, I know you've been guest principal trumpet with the New York Philharmonic, San Francisco Symphony, and I know orchestras around the country and probably around the world have, have tried to get your services many, many times, and because of your schedules, you're not always able to do it. But in addition to talking about any of those orchestras that you like, I'd also like to hear your uh, perspective on how you approach playing in the orchestra as opposed to uh, playing in a chamber situation, and maybe it's not a huge difference. Maybe it's more uh, uh, organic to you. But I'm just curious well, about it's, that. It is. No, it's a great, great question, and it's a, it's a big topic. It's the, the, it's like you know, a singer doing opera versus singing a Schubert lead, you know, in recital. So, chamber music is, and I learned this from Armando Gattali years ago. He said, you know, chamber music is conversational you play like you're speaking in the orchestra you're more like addressing a big crowd mm. so if you were an, doing an you know the Gettysburg address you know you're going to speak a certain way and you wouldn't speak like that to someone right next to you or if you did you'd be carted off <laughs> you know <laughs> and and likewise if you speak conversationally to a big crowd you, you won't get heard so uh and it's 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 something that needs to be practiced and cultivated that art of expression and, and uh, um, projection, and it's not just volume, but also stylistically. Like in, in the orchestra, you bring out, you know, little details, maybe proportionally more, like, you know, you'll articulate a little harder quick notes to get them out front. And there are trumpet players who will do that same thing when they're playing a sonata for trumpet and piano, and it's totally, you know, a, a, a bad decision, in my opinion, in that case, because you want to play conversationally, you know, you don't need to project, but it's so ingrained in the, in the habits of trumpet players, because we're basically brought up, that's the starting point, how do you project and play sort of big? So that's, uh, uh, 
that idea, and then <clears throat> tonal quality. Uh, I was a student when the Berlin Philharmonic came to, to New York, and, and that just turned a lot of people. That was in the early 70s when, and that's when conductors like Bernstein, Zubin Mehta, James Levine started asking for rotary trumpets. And it wasn't so much that you changed a rotary, but a sort of, I think, a darker kind of quality was starting to be prized. Uh, I think there was a brighter sort of ethos, you know, before that, in general. I mean, mm -hmm. my father used to say, you know, whenever you make a generalization, you leave a lot of the truth out. So I am leaving a lot of the truth out, but you're also putting <laughs> a little bit of it in, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I've always tried to play sort of more in that dark kind of... Uh, I tend to play more B-flat trumpet in the orchestra than most people, and I use rotary if, if we're all using them. We used a lot of them in New York, New York with St. Luke's and even Orpheus. And uh, so those kind of things... Uh, it's it's a great topic and and you know just listening a lot uh, you know I we when I was a student you know you could drop the needle and you could say that's Philly that's Cleveland that's Boston that's Chicago that's New York orchestras sound much more similar nowadays than they mm -hmm. used to and you know we were talking earlier about students nowadays don't really buy recordings they download and often I find with my students who are great and you know I I learn a tremendous amount from them very often, but often the act of downloading, they don't, I'll say, well, who's on that? And they, well, I have to, so when, when you bought a record, you saw that it was Fritz Reiner in Chicago. <laughs> you download something, you might forget who it is. And, and so we identified styles uh, more distinctly uh, in, in that fashion, which was easier to do. But orchestras sound a lot more similar now than they used to. Mm, you know, yeah. I think there's a, that, world, that book, The World is Flat, is, applies to the you know, the general standard is, uh, as you know, people like some of the classic trumpet players have said, like Tom Stevens, that the general standard is is up. Right, right. But it's also there's a leveling also. Yeah. Of stylistic. Uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. I know. I remember uh, hearing the New York Philharmonic and Cleveland Orchestra back when a good friend of mine, Steve Witzer, was uh, alive and playing in the Cleveland Orchestra, and then I had gone to hear a, an all Copeland concert with Bernstein conducting with New York Phil, and then the, the next night I heard uh, Cleveland playing. And you're right, I mean, hearing these the distinctly different styles, and I think now some of that's getting, you know, the corners are getting rounded a, a bit, you know. But, um, Chris, I wanted to talk yet another facet of your playing, and I think I just wanted to address one thing you just said when you talked about listening. And I know the times we've worked together, I, I just immediately sense that from you, is that you're always listening to everybody in whatever situation you're in. So I think that's probably uh, a really important point that you brought up, is that it's important to adapt to whatever, and the only way that's going to happen is through listening. And extending that one step further, let's talk a little bit about your solo playing, which is equally extraordinary, and uh, I wanted to um, specifically focus on your relationship with Eric E. Wazen, who I consider to be one of the great brass composers of all time, certainly in the, in the current uh, um, composers. Um, and he's written a beautiful piece, Sonata for Trumpet and Piano, which I believe he wrote for you and, and you've recorded. And uh, I wondered if you could talk about how you approach solo playing and then also if you, at the same time, maybe address your relationship with Eric a bit. Well, I'll start, let me start with Eric, because we were okay. in school together. And at Eastman, that's another, I was very interested in, in composing. Mm. And I wanted to be, I'm not, I can't. I mean, you know, it takes perseverance and hard work like anything. I have perseverance and hard work when it comes to this trumpet. I didn't have, I could always come up with a clever opening. I couldn't see it through. <laughs> you know? And I remember Sam Adler, who was teaching composition, you know, he chuckled with me. He, he used to have an exercise where you would, uh, he, he wanted his students to write 40 measures a day. 
just to get used to that sort of industry. And uh, I remember he said to me, and I wasn't really seriously studying, but he, he, was, uh, ch he chuckled at me one day and said, I've noticed you write a lot in 2-4. <laughs> 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 so I was trying to get my 40 in. <laughs> so it wasn't in the cards, but, but I live vicariously through composers. And Eric is one of them. I played on every composer's forum at Eastman. And can, I continue, I've, I've always got projects with composers going on. Uh, I, right now, I'm in the middle of them, too. I just spoke to a friend of mine in North Carolina who's writing, you know, just, I've always got stuff in the pipeline and I'm, I'm very anxious to, you know, make contact with composers in that way. Mm. And, and like I say, it's probably that I'm living vicariously through them in a way. <laughs> Eric and I are dear friends. He was at Eastman and, uh, and uh, we were in the same class. Anyway, he, he came to New York right after and he was teaching at Juilliard, just theory and, and, and uh, also in the prep department. and. Uh, and I remember it was 85 or 86, Berio had written the, the uh, sequenza for solo trumpet and to, for Tom Stevens, who premiered in L.A., but I was asked to do the New York premiere. Mm. And I did it, and uh, Eric came to the concert, I remember. And we went out for a drink afterwards. There was a little group of us. And uh, started talking to Eric, and, and I said, you know, you should write some brass stuff. And, and, write, and I encouraged him to write a brass quintet. And the next year, he came out with the Colchester Fantasy, which became a real signature piece for the American Brass Quintet. And then, mm. but anyway, then in, in uh, he was uh, in the mid '90s writing Sonata, and I uh, I was living not that far from him in those days. And every 50, 60 measures, so he would I would come over and we, you know, it's a great piece. It's it's now, according to some records kept by ASCAP and the International Trumpet Guild, I believe it's the most performed trumpet sonata, you know. It's oh, a terrific wonderful. piece. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. And Eric is often t typified as a, a, a sort of a neo-romantic or a, a, you know, and he does write tonally. It, by the way, he was a student of Milton Babbitt's, mm. and, uh, a, a, and they're very close, and, uh, but, and I, I knew Milton, too. And Milton was a, an amazing teacher, and, of course, you know, we know his music. I mean, but he was an amazing teacher who wanted his students to write you know, fine, and, and I'll name another student of Milton Babbitt, it was Stephen Sondheim. So, you know, Milton taught people wow, to, to find their own identity. Yeah. You know. Anyway, um, so Eric, uh, I think he writes actually quite revolutionary for the trumpet in that he uh, writes the trumpet, like there are parts in the sonata where the trumpet is accompanying the piano. And uh, I've heard the sonata played by some really great players who, you know, the traditional is a trumpet always leads and never follows. Eric actually asks you to play in an in a ultra-conversational way. In the second movement, you, you state the melody, and then you sort of curve your notes underneath the piano. So it's like you're playing viola or something and, and, and complementing what the pianist is doing. So Eric is writing quite new, in a new way for the trumpet. And, and he's f asking and uh, sort of demanding that the trumpet be thought of differently. And there are, there are you know, sort of an old school of trumpet. You, you don't, you know, you're always at the head of the parade. You mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. And Eric is asking for the sort of like, like uh, snake charmer, you know, inside kind of thing, which is really exciting, I think. And uh, 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 so but a bunch of other pieces too. I mean, song cycle, a trio with violin, another trio with cello. I mean, he's really written some 
great uh, stuff. Yeah, uh, extremely company, you know. prolific, and I, yeah. it does seem like you and him are a match made in musical heaven there, because you, you're you're that kind of player, you know, that you you have the instincts to follow what's going, what the music is giving you. Well, I'm great. I'm grateful for him. I mean, you know, I I don't ever say to him, write this way, write that way. I, I might make a suggestion, like mostly, I need some rest here, you know, but but, but he, uh, I'm just very, you know. Uh, Grateful and and by the way, I I don't think of it as that he wrote for me like like the trio for violin, trumpet, and piano, he wrote for me and I premiered it and everything, and then but I I don't to me it's written for all of us you know mm -hmm. and and who cares who plays a piece first and so when the opportunity for Phil Smith to to record it came up and Phil called me and said you know and it, it's like of course I mean <laughs> I recorded it later and I'm very happy with the recording I was able to do. But uh, this idea that a performer has sort of ownership of a piece, I, I just have no patience for that. Mm. I mean, it, it's, it's just once they write something, it just belongs to all of us. Mm. That's know. a great outlook, yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's, let's switch gears even one more time here and, and talk about uh, your versatility. Uh, I know you and I have worked together a lot on various motion picture soundtracks. We did uh, some concerts with Sting together and... Uh, I think we did David Letterman with Peter Gabriel yeah. together, and you, you know, it just seems like whatever situation you find yourself in, you you were able to shine musically and, and really bring something to the table. Um, you know, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the recording you did with Wayne Shorter, which I think is an astounding piece of your resume. It's just uh, incredible that that you've done all these different things. But anyway, I, really specifically, it's talking about how you approach. Uh, that part of the playing, which you seem to be very comfortable in that world as well, which is not always the case for, for more classically oriented players, but just kind of curious about how you approach uh, the versatility aspect. Well, first of all, there, there's, a, there's a place everyone is going to be uncomfortable and, and uh, no one can do everything. I, I think that it just comes from inside. And I grew up with rock and roll and jazz, you know, just, uh, and by the way, those are not necessarily compatible. I know jazz musicians who cannot play a rock thing. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. And, and, and of course, a lot of rock musicians are mystified by the complexities of, that are inherent in jazz. And, and there might be a jazz musician who is very uncomfortable with Latin music or, you know, or have a tough time in a Broadway show. You know, it's just like uh, sure. uh, the, uh, the, <laughs> the first time I played subbed on a Broadway show when I first got to New York, I was sitting next to somebody who I grew up listening to who had played with Charles Mingus. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, I can't believe I'm sitting here. And so I'm reading this show, and at 15 minutes of the show, I feel a tap on my shoulder, and I'm like, I look over at him, and he goes, where are we? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, he was great and everything, but that was, uh, anyway, um, I, I'll, I'll get a lot of people come to me for lessons and they'll sort of say, you know, I'd like to learn a little about jazz and, and the idea is that I'm going to add it to my skill set. And I, I'm very respectful. I mean, I, I appreciate that sort of thing, but it's not really going to happen that way. It's really got to come from inside. Mm. There's a big difference between playing jazzy and jazz. So I, and, you know, you hear, you, you hear Gershwin, American in Paris, and that trumpet solo. And I've heard some like really great orchestral players play that. And I, again, I don't mean any disrespect, but I'm almost nauseated because they're doing so much inflection. It's like hearing a British guy trying to sound so black, you know, mm -hmm. that, that black player going, God damn, you know, it's <laughs> like, like that. And it's, uh, so, you know, when you hear the Ellington Orchestra, 
and I was my father had some of those records, and you know, listen to Rain Ants and and Johnny Hodges and 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 uh, uh, Sam Nanton. Mm -hmm. That the, there's a certain dignity to the solos. Now, there, there is earthy expression, but there's a sort of you know, and when you hear Wayne Shorter, John Coltrane, you know, there's a dignity. To, it's not like you know, jazzy. You mm -hmm. know, that's mm -hmm. something else. Mm -hmm. So I think it's. Uh, so I sometimes I'm. So I, you know, you'll you'll play in a brass quintet now and then. You'll do an arrangement of something. I remember Alan Dean and I talking about that. And it's this is kind of embarrassing to you know five. Well, you know, it's just tough. And uh, so anyway, it has to come from inside, including a feeling for rock, and and which is a different kind of beat. And uh, when I was in Europe with Sting, and we're doing a lot of filming and and live recordings over there, and. Some of his musicians would like. I, I was, you know, Ira Coleman was on bass, and we had mm. a few. And they were always like chuckle about the Yank musicians that we sort of felt the beat, sort of in back of the beat, and the, you know they were right on top. You know, it's a different. It's a different thing, and and uh, I think it's tr true. I mean, listening, but listening means sort of listening to what's underneath, and and w wanting to be coming, you know, the core of it, and it, and it comes from like you know I. I worked off and on with Sting in various different things from the 80s because I played that show on Broadway. He did the Three Penny Opera and later on was doing, you know, he had concerts where he would want to do uh, Penny Lane and I would play the piccolo trumpet, mm -hmm. you know. And then this project, which was sort of folk kind of music. And, and uh, there's another thing. I, I arrive in Durham, England, and uh, there's not basically not really any music, you know. And, and then you go back to your early experiences of playing with bands where you did sort of, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, find a way, find mm -hmm. a way to contribute. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I don't, you know, versatility is a funny word. Uh, I, I understand what it means. It's, 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 but it's, I think there's an in internal side to it. It's not external. You, you can't put on a suit on, here's my jazz suit, mm -hmm. here's my rock mm -hmm. suit. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's got to come from deep inside. I think that's really well said. I think that's that's exactly what it is, and it's got it, it does have to be internal, and uh, and it is interesting to see certain. You know, you bring up jazz musicians playing rock. I mean, that's always a f f striking thing to me that some sometimes that just doesn't happen. The seventies were really bad for that because because there were some jazz musicians who thought they could make more money, and, and right. there's some real <laughs> stinkers. Why. Yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> of great musicians, but it's just. You know, tell me, someone was telling me once uh, there. Uh, someone was recording down in, in the Virgin Islands, and they had a great this great drummer, and it just wasn't working. And they found that Ringo Starr was on the beach getting a suntan, and they called him in. And, and you know, it, Ringo didn't have any of the technique, that, but it was just perfect. You know, it's just wow. the, the feel. You know, it's, 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 it's these intangibles. Yeah, yeah, you know. indeed, indeed. Well, this this interview has has felt like a lesson in a way. You've got so many it said so many great things and so many helpful things, but. Let's take a second and talk about your your role as an educator, uh, your highly esteemed uh, teacher. Um, people come around the world to study with you. you. You have been at the University of Maryland since 1998, but previous to that, you taught at Juilliard and uh, uh, Columbia, Manhattan School of Music. Uh, a couple of, we were talking about some of your students, and so many of them have gone on to great success, but uh, among your standouts, uh, Michael Lenhart, who plays with Steely Dan, among other things, one of the great musicians, young trumpet players, amazing writer as well. And, of course, David Krause, who's the uh, principal trumpeter of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. But um, clearly you've had equal amount of success as a trumpet professor. Uh, maybe you could talk about your, you know, some of the experiences you've had in that realm and, and your feelings about... Uh, education 
Well, uh, it's, uh, I think a, someone said, some ancient thinker said to teach is to learn twice. And I, I, I feel like I learn a lot from teaching. So I'm grateful for that. And, uh, but when I try, you know, I think any teacher you study with is going to teach you what it is got them over. You know, my generation, the older players, it was transposition. Like, got, we got hammered with it, <laughs> you know. Uh, I'm, I'm more likely to focus on, you know, rhythmic literacy, and uh, I place a big pr priority on uh, laying the groundwork for someone to sight read well. In other words, to sit down at a job and play, be able to play whatever is put in front of them. Because, as you know, better than me, that, that in the studio, that's what you do. The ink is often not even dry. <laughs> <You're expected. laughs> and there's no learning curve. It's not like, uh, let's work on this till we get it right. It's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it's, uh, uh, anyway, so, um, but I, I, it's a commitment and I, I have a, you know, a lot of uh, approaches. Uh, uh, another thing, kids my age, when I was young, we all, we all went to Bruce Lee movies, you know. <laughs> and I, I always remember thinking Bruce Lee, because we all had his books too, and he always said that, that uh, a teacher is a finger pointing at the moon, and, and a, a good student looks at the moon, a bad student looks at the finger. So that's all we're doing. We're, I, you know, to me, great trumpet playing or great musician is something bigger, musicianship is something bigger than us. It's bigger than me, it's bigger than the student. It's something out there, and I'm pointing to it, and I'm asking the student to, to aim for that. And, uh, and that's... That's an attitude I actually Arnold Jacobs talked a lot about. When I was in Kansas City in the mid-70s, my, my best friend, my roommate at Eastman, was a horn player named Ron Schneider. We're still very dear friends. He's just retiring his third horn to Pittsburgh Symphony. Mm. He took Phil Myers' place. Phil Myers left third horn Pittsburgh to come to first in New York. And I, Ron went to Northwestern as a graduate student, and I was in Kansas. And every time I had any time off, I would take a train from Kansas City to Chicago. In the mid-70s, you know, Chicago was such a mecca for brass. You know, I'd go to master classes and just sit watch, you know, Jacobs, Clevenger, uh, Jay Friedman, un unbelievable time. Mm. But I remember uh, Jacobs saying, to, uh, don't be obsessed with your sound. And we're like, what? He said, be obsessed with what you want to sound like. Now, to always project your, uh, he said, people will play and they'll be like criticizing themselves. You may, you sound different on different days, but if you're always playing to this ideal, you will sound the best on that given day. Mm. And he said he learned that from Herseth. Herseth would not be that concerned about, Herseth would be playing toward an ideal all the time. And if you always play toward an ideal, if you always play toward great musicianship, and don't be concerned, you know, you, everyone makes mistakes, everyone screws, everyone sounds bad at times, but you're always playing toward an ideal, you will always play your best at any given moment. Mm. And. Uh, so I'm always, I, I don't like to hear people say, well, I'm going to practice and then, you know, I, I'm going to play until I like the way I sound. I mean, I understand that. I mean, actually, we all do that too. But that the whole Jacobs thing was about projection, about uh, playing beyond yourself. And I think that's ultimately uh, the um, uh, secret to being happy as a musician. I mean, it's a tough world. It's a tough exasperating, difficult way. It's, it's weird to be a performer, especially get older. I mean, mm -hmm. It's weird to go on stage, bright lights, you're dressed up, and, but you love it, or you need it, rather. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you have to have two attitudes. You have to be your own worst critic, and you also have to enjoy what you do. You have to, 
you have to believe that you have the right to enjoy what you do. If you do nothing but criticize yourself, you're a neurotic mess. And if you just do nothing but like what you do, that's no good either. You never get any better. So the two things have to be sort of this continual yin-yang kind of circle. Uh, you're hard on yourself, but you also have to sort of have this love of, of pointing towards something that's bigger than you. And, uh, and that's what Jacob's and, and basically, and that's sort of what teaching, you know, you're teaching the students to project themselves. And there's a lot of, you know, grunt work, you're working this out, working that out, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's a big, it's a combination of short-term and long-term goals, I guess. Yeah. Wow, that is an incredibly well said. I mean, I love the analogy of the moon, and you're, yeah, it's just like so well said. Um, Chris, let's, if we can, talk a little bit about um, kind of the state of classical music, the state of chamber music. I know a lot of our colleagues in New York and string players that I work with talk about how, how much the business has contracted for them. The, the, the uh, more freelance orchestras are getting less and less. If they're, even if they're still in existence, the, their, their seasons are much less. We're seeing problems with orchestras, but yet we're now we're starting to see a little bit of uh, brightness on the horizon. I'm seeing orchestras that are doing well. I just read an article about Chicago Symphonies had their fourth year in a row of record-breaking ticket sales. So I was curious from your perspective, because I, th I think your vantage point is quite unique in that you've been in all of these worlds and had such success in all these different uh, uh, mediums. How do you see the, the future, as, especially as an educator and you're sending out all these wonderful students who are having success, but how do you see the future of uh, classical music in general, but you know, widening that out a little bit, just to, that, that type of music and how is it going to survive and, and prosper in the future? Um, great, great question. And just as a brief prelude, I, I often like to, to talk Sometimes I talk to the students about what classical means, and you know, technically classical means in, uh, not subject to fad. And I, I will remind them that nothing is more classical than Duke Ellington <laughs> and Miles Davis, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So and Beatles, you know. So you know, of course, things that have stood the test of time. So to yeah. Speak. Well, and I'm going back to, to I, I. I usually bring up sayings that my father. You know, my father died when I was pretty young, so I remember a lot of what he said. And, and he used to tell me, he said, you know, there never, don't let anyone tell you there was ever any good old days. <laughs> no matter what period of time you live in, it's a mixture of good and bad. <laughs> you know, we tend as humans, uh, our psychology tends to look in the past sort of rosily. Um, I remember Johnny Ware in the New York Philharmonic telling me, you know, the best time to be in the Philharmonic was in the 50s. You know, the way the balance, of the, it was a 30 some weeks, you know, you'll just hear a, a wide variety of things. The, the very first opera ever composed, Monteverdi in, I think, 1607 in, in Venice. Within 20 years, there were letters of protest to the city government that this, is, this art form it cannot sustain itself. It's too expensive. It's a waste of money. You know, uh, scientists look at bumblebees and say they cannot. They're, it, according to laws of aerodynamics, they're not supposed to be able to fly, yet mm. they fly. Mm. I think the music business is like the bumblebee. I mean, it doesn't really make any sense, yet it's never going to go away. Yeah. So it's always, you know, when, when, the, when the first sound, you can look at back old union papers, when the first uh, sound movies came out, there was a tremendous fear that the music business was done for because all these theaters that, that had orchestras, no longer. When Chariots of Fire came out in the early 70s, it was the first synthesized soundtrack. Oh, it's all over. Forget it. We're all done for. Yeah. I, in the early, in, in, in that time, the early, there was a time when, when synthesizer players were paid something like 37 times 
scale. It just lasted like a couple <laughs> years because the union was so afraid of them replacing string sections. Mm. Now we have a virtual orchestra, which to a lot of theater orchestras is like the dinosaurs looking at the meteor coming to Earth, you know. <laughs> but it's, there's, we're always going to be in the brink of disaster. That's just the way the business is. And it will, I just believe it will always sort of find a way because music is part of being human. And uh, I know that sounds a little, you know, kind of like maybe rosy, but it's actually the damn truth. You know, mm -hmm. it's like uh, um, orchestras have had tr tremendous troubles and there's a cyclical nature to this. Also with students, you know, you get to be older, you get, when I would go in to play with the Philharmonic, as, you know, we talked to Carmine and some of the players, and, and they w would really not have a strong sense of any music making in New York City outside of Lincoln Center. You, you get us, you get it kind of, uh, you'll get older players saying, well, there's nothing for young players to do anymore. Well, I'm in contact with young players, and some of them are really busy. Now, I'm not saying that they're doing, you know, my, they may be doing something that hopefully will pay more in the future, but there's a lot of activity. It's, it's almost like um, in the forest, you know, the certain, a predator may not be aware of another, you know, so when you get older as a musician, you're sort of playing with people that are in your group, and you're not aware of like two rungs down, but there's a tremendous amount of activity going on. And, uh, you know, it, it, there has to be, because we're flooded with applicants, and, mm -hmm. I, and a lot of music schools are. If, if, there was, if it was this desert out there, that wouldn't be. It just wouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that it's uh, the best decision to make in all cases, but... Uh, you know, th th there is, there was, and there always will be a lot of musical activity. Now, the ins and outs of the music business and how different industries work, they all have their fluctuations. The theater, orchestras, yeah, it is very serious. I mm -hmm. played Peter Pan a couple of years ago and, and at Wolf Trap down in D.C., and half the pit was two people on computer, <laughs> you know. Yeah. You know, it's just like, what? <laughs> we didn't know that, you know. Suddenly, all the string players we knew, they weren't there, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's, it's always going to be problematical. Uh, the future will probably be a lot like now, and probably if you really went back 30 years, uh, similar. I mean, I remember people in the 70s talking about, oh, it's, you know, New York is like, and then the 80s had a reburgeoning, mm -hmm. uh, you know. I don't know. So... It's not a, I don't really have a good answer. I don't, I can't tell you what the future, I probably the future will be a lot like now and probably a lot like the past with different details. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think it's really well said though. I mean, you, you brought up a lot of great points and I think it's, it's a challenging business, always has been and, and always will be. But like you said, I think it will always survive and in, in some ways it'll always thrive. Yeah. And that, that goes, you know, listening to the, the, the little bit of contact I have just listening to someone like Arnold Jacobs speak, I mean, he always had the thing about you're part of something bigger than yourself. And that, that's a great perspective is everything. You know, if you get so wrapped up in your own troubles, we all have troubles, but, you know, if you can see what you're doing as part of, you know, that's a kind of a perspective and a, a way out mm -hmm. of, of, you know, getting by. Yeah, <laughs> well said. Well, Chris, I, first of all, thank you again for... Uh, taking the time today. I know you've got a busy schedule and you're heading back to, uh, to Maryland tonight to hear your daughter play. And, uh, um, but as, as we wrap up today, I, I kind of like to uh, give something to younger folks. And I know, obviously, you're very generous with the, your time and your thoughts. Um, 
If you had one piece of advice that you would give to a young musician, it doesn't have to be a trumpet player, but, but anybody, but what would, what would you, your, your uh, well, your, both of your, your kids are both very talented musicians. I'm sure you give them a lot of guidance in that regard, but I'd be curious to how you would maybe uh, guide a young person in, who's thinking about becoming a musician. Well, you know, follow your, you know, I, I, I was thinking that's, I was thinking I was going to say follow your heart, but that sounds too much like a what, <laughs> sound of music or something. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I remember I was talking to Chris Bodie once and he was saying that, that, that when a young student says that, a young musician says to him, I listen to everything. Chris says, well, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should, you know. <laughs> And, and I, of course you listen to everything, but don't be afraid to really get into something, you know. Uh, I still do that. And my, I, I talk about my friend Bob Saden, who's a dear friend, and, and I think the world of him, and he's a great, this monster producer, Grammy winning all this with all these different, and he and I mostly talk about sports. But, you know, like uh, some time ago he sent me this Schoenberg song, Herzkovach, the uh, Foliage of the Heart. It's the opus right before Perrault. Three and a half minutes. I couldn't get it out of my, so I, I started listening to more Schoenberg. You know, I've recorded Schoenberg in the past, but I never listened. So lately, that's what I've been doing. Violin, mm. concerto, mm. variations, and hearing stuff that I, I didn't, you know, so I would say uh, it's not just advice for young, because I'm still doing that. I mean, we're all students our whole life, and, and follow, you know, follow things and see them through and see where it leads you. Uh, um, you know, that's, that would be my advice, but to be honest, to someone who just does that, they don't need that advice. <laughs> you know? Well, listen, Chris, thank you. Again, it was, uh, I, I enjoyed every minute of it. I oh, felt like you, you, you had yeah, so many great, great things yeah. to say, and I know all, all of our uh, listeners are going to get a ton out of it. Keep an eye on this uh, young man. He's always doing something cool and creative. And uh, if you're down in Maryland, uh, they've got an amazing program down there. And uh, check out what they're, uh, they're up to. But, uh, Chris, once again, thanks so thank much. Thanks. We will see all of you next time on Bone to Pick. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Do you want to honor your band director and win some great swag for your band program? Please like us on Facebook at Facebook.com and vote for your favorite educator at our Band Director of the Month program. Don't forget to visit www.hipbonemusic.com for more great interviews, information, and for a complete lineup of method books. We're here to help you get better. Thanks for listening.